Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Christopher Chivas, Senior Fellow and Director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Chris, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here, John. Been looking forward to this. We're going to be talking about the realism of Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, based off a Carnegie paper you wrote a couple years back. But before we dive into Niebuhr himself, I want you to set the context by expanding on what you meant by this opening line in the paper. Quote, the habits of primacy and exceptionalism that history has bestowed on today's U.S. foreign policy elites are unlikely to serve the nation well in a more competitive 21st century international environment. What are these habits of primacy and exceptionalism that you speak of, and why are they unlikely to serve us well? Well, I think one way of looking at the history of U.S. foreign policy is that it really begins after World War II, when the United States had found itself in a position of having defeated Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and enjoyed unprecedented power in the world, um, especially in terms of its relations with the former European great powers in Europe. But also, when you look at the relative power that the United States had, um, you know, in relation to uh, what came to be known as the the third world or the non-aligned world. The second phase of U.S. foreign policy was after the Cold War, when the only major competitor to American power, the Soviet Union, collapsed. And the collapse of the Soviet Union, again, left the United States in, in a position of unprecedented power. In both of these situations, the United States foreign policy elites here in Washington, um, you know, very much an East Coast establishment group, some of the best and smartest minds in the United States, developed ways of approaching the world that were rooted in the assumption that American power could solve almost any problem that they faced. They had enormous confidence uh, in what the United States could accomplish in the world. And, you know, you can say that that confidence was uh, was probably warranted given America's position. America, nevertheless, made a lot of mistakes, especially, uh, for example, the Vietnam War. Um, and we're all familiar with the mistakes that we made uh, after the 9-11 attacks here in Washington. I'm thinking primarily of Iraq, but also in other places around the world. And so the the habits of viewing the world uh, as easily malleable to America's power are the habits that I'm really thinking about. Those are the habits of primacy. And now we're entering another phase, I think, in the history of American foreign policy that's marked by, uh, in particular, the rise of China as a strategic competitor with the United States. And it's marked also by the complication of our interdependence with many countries in the world, including China. This is going to be a very, very different kind of an operating environment for American statecraft than those first two phases. And it's going to be one in which the habits of primacy that were acquired after World War II and after the end of the Cold War, I don't think are going to serve America very well. American leadership is still an option for the world, but it's got to be of a very different kind than the kind that we have exercised in the past. You kind of sum up Reinhold Niebuhr's contributions to U.S. foreign policy thought this way. He, quote, drew attention to the unintended consequences of U.S. power in the world, pointed out Americans' naivete, 
and called for greater restraint and humility in U.S. foreign policy. He's got a critique of American exceptionalism that you talk about. Um, and um, start with square one. I mean, pretend the listener hasn't heard of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. I introduce him to us. Well, the reason why I was really interested in um, reading deeply in Niebuhr's work, and it was just an extraordinary pleasure to do this. I should say I had three or four months when I was um, just coming out of the intelligence community and was given the opportunity to do this here at the Carnegie Endowment. Um, the reason why I picked Niebuhr to invest my time and energy into is because he always seemed to me to have the most clear-headed critique of American exceptionalism. The idea that somehow America, because of its unique history, uh, has got a special role to play in the world. And certainly the United States can do good in the world. Um, and he does not argue with that. But what he points out is that Americans are often naive about the consequences of power in general as a, as a factor in politics, and especially naive about the realities of American power in, in the international system. And as a result, America has a tendency to make foreign policy choices, um, which it believes are, um, are uh, without consequences. Uh, or, or foreign policy choices in which the negative consequences or what we sometimes call the negative externalities are not fully considered simply because Americans can tend to believe that when America acts, when America exercises its power, when America coerces, it is for the good by nature of what uh, America stands for. Um, and in doing that, American um, foreign policymakers have sometimes uh, failed to see the extent to which, even when America believes it's acting for the good, uh, the rest of the world uh, does not see it the same way. What kind of realist was he? What, what distinguished him from some of his intellectual peers and contemporaries that also garnered that label? Well, he was a realist of an earlier generation, I think, before you, you have the elaboration of more sophisticated theories of uh, realism in academia in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, and more recently. Um, he was a realist simply in the sense that he believed that power and coercion were core factors in international affairs and that it was impossible to escape this. And he contrasted his view of uh, politics, both domestic and international, where coercion and power are key factors. Uh, with the the view of a contemporary of his, who John Dewey, a famous philosopher, uh, who came much more from a scientific view of the world, or more inspired by the Enlightenment, and perhaps in that sense uh, more uh, more typically American uh, than Niebuhr was. Um, but Dewey believed that uh, it would be possible through education, uh, engineering. Um, and institution building, or if you built the right institutions, to solve the fundamental problems of international politics uh, and achieve uh, you know, world, world peace uh, and economic growth. This is a typically American view, uh, very much a view that uh, also inspired uh, President Wilson, although Dewey's writings come after Wilson. But um, you know, Niebuhr saw this as, uh, as fundamentally naive about the human condition, and he was very critical of it um, because he he his view of how politics uh, and international politics, in particular, worked um, was uh, much more grounded in the the observation that humans are driven as much by passion uh, 
uh, as they are by reason. Yeah, I, his uh, sense of human nature really comes through in a lot of his writings in Moral Man and Immoral Society. Uh, you write that his central thesis is that individuals and states are incurably egoistic. What, what does he mean by that? Well, it's interesting because he actually thinks that individuals can transcend their own egoism. That the sort of the the, the basic mode of operation for a human being is is egoism, and that we may sometimes trick ourselves into thinking that what we're doing uh, we're doing for a, a higher cause or because it's morally right. Um, and he believes that you know humans. Um, individuals can probably do that from time to time. They may not do it as often as they think, but certainly, hum certainly human individuals have that uh, capacity. But he, he seriously doubts that that capacity can be achieved at the level of the nation, simply because at that level, there is already there are already so many different competing particular interests uh, that have to be accounted for. That for a nation to truly transcend all of those competing interests uh, and act in a way that is, um, you know, not in its self-interest for the good of the international order or the world system, um, is is nearly impossible. He just doesn't think it's realistic to expect it, uh, and therefore he's critical of those who who claim that their policies, their foreign policy recommendations, uh, are are aimed at uh, some kind of a greater good for the world. He sees behind those recommendations, he's very suspicious of them, uh, and he sees behind them uh, something that um, has at other times by other people been called um, a will to power cloaked in idealism. This is a realism that emphasizes human fallibility and hubris, has a certain epistemological humility that informs what policies should or shouldn't be pursued. Um, unlike some other manifest manifestations of realism, it sort of seems to seek peace as a major priority despite a cynical worldview. Um, it's sensitive to the perspectives of the enemy and to you know cultural differences in the ways that U.S. rhetoric is often blind to those perspectives. Um, he counseled to avoid the tendency to meet the foe's self-righteousness with a corresponding fury of our own. And importantly, he was willing to be forthright about uh, the faults and sins of his own country, as you kind of mentioned. Most of these insights or kind of flavors of realism, it seems to me, um, suggest restraint rather than any kind of pugnacious militarism. Is that part of what you're trying to point out in the paper? Yeah, I think you got it exactly right. I mean, I think um, he, he counsels uh, humility when it comes to U.S. foreign foreign policy, humility about America's objectives, skepticism about American claims to have uh, a unique or higher level of moral authority in international affairs, um, and um, as a consequence, humility about what uh, the United States tries to achieve. I think he hopes that uh, that humility will result in um, lower probability of conflict, uh, but not that it will eliminate it altogether. He also doesn't believe that uh, uh, that humility that results in, in effectively results in self-restraint um, is will deprive the United States of the need for coercion from time to time. And this is the realist side of him. He recognizes that the reality of the world is such that the United States will uh, 
at, at, at junctures in history have to u- use its coercive power. He just hopes that it will make a, a full-hearted and complete effort to try to, to, to do so in keeping with an understanding that the way that the United States acts, the, re- the, the justifications that the United States gives for its actions uh, may not always stand up to the test of time. You write that in the irony of American history, Niebuhr depicted the core struggle between East and West in essentially moral terms. What do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting because Niebuhr was close to the Socialist Party in the 1930s. Um, he, he cared deeply for uh, the American workers uh, and was concerned about the conditions that they were operating in, which he viewed as dehumanizing. Um, and he shared uh, the views of people, some of whom went uh, farther than he did and eventually became uh, communists themselves, even though the communist movement in the United States was never very big, effect- effectively adopted very radical views. Um, Niebuhr, Niebuhr himself moved in a, in a different direction over the trajectory of his career. Rather than moving towards uh, you know, a, a sort of radical critique of American capitalism, he actually tempered it. Um, and tempered his own critique of liberal democracy um, with the with the view that um, liberal democracy has many uh, has many faults. Liberal capitalism uh, is also uh, part of you know he's all, is also an object of that critique in his mind. But he came to the realization that the Soviet Union, um, the communist uh, alternative, was uh, even worse simply because it took the views of one class. He said and this was the working class. Um, and took their ideal world in which property is destroyed uh, and made that um, the sole objective of, uh, of, of society. And this, for Niebuhr, was just another form of tyranny, and it was highly um, susceptible to the manipulation, he was correct in this, to the manipulation of small groups of, of elites. And effectively, he said, there's no reason why a worker's paradise should have moral authority over uh, the liberal democratic system that we have. And besides the liberal democratic system, he, he came around to admit, has a number of advantages, um, one of the most important of which was that it allowed individuals like him to criticize, uh, to express their thoughts freely, um, and in doing so, managed to, in his view, provide for a healthier, uh, a healthier overall political environment uh, and society. I noticed you made mention of his views of NATO in the paper, um, that he thought of it as reassurance and he warned against expecting too much of the new organization or sacrificing more important strategies to it. And that just made me wonder about today's debates about NATO and I don't know what kind of Niburian uh, insights do we have about the current way the United States engages in NATO. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, Niebuhr was was sort of um, lukewarm about NATO. He he thought basically, from a pragmatic perspective, um, it was a good thing to reassure uh, America's what well, what became through the North Atlantic Treaty, America's allies in Western Europe, um, that the United States uh, was not going to abandon them because he believed that that would. Uh, they needed that confidence in order to pursue, um, you know, peace-oriented policies in the aftermath of the war, and not, you know, renationalize uh, in any dangerous way their their own defense industries. Um, 
a, a path that that could have been you know more costly for the United States than uh, agreeing to sign up for NATO. But he also uh, you know he also didn't place a lot of emphasis on NATO. It just wasn't a big part of his thinking about how the United States ought to uh, ought to um, you know act in the world. And I think he would be surprised. <laughs> By where NATO is, uh, NATO has gone today. I mean, I my guess is he would still have some sympathy for uh, the organization um, and recognize that um, you know there's there's reason to believe that um, you know the the organization does some good in reassuring some allies. But you know he would be skeptical of the idea that NATO provides the solution for uh, what are a very complex set of um, you know security political security and economic challenges in Europe. And I think that he would be skeptical of those here in Washington right now who tend to turn to NATO um, almost uh, out of habit uh, as the solution for, again, uh, you know, problems that have a long history, um, are, are deeply political um, and uh, are, are going to be very hard to, to, to resolve. You point out one of the things that Niebuhr emphasizes is something that I see going on in contemporary foreign policy debates all the time, which is this tendency to very, very selectively apply our quote-unquote moral leadership by condemning only those undemocratic regimes that don't happen to be allies or client states of ours and whom we have historically, we continue to this day uh, to support their atrocities while making sure to self-righteously condemn the crimes of, of adversaries. Um, can you expand on that insight from Niebuhr and, and talk about maybe the ways that that manifests in today's debates. I mean, he talks about American myopia and moral hypocrisy, and I, I, he, by, by which he means exactly what you just um, you know, mentioned, which is the tendency of the United States to claim that it stands for um, you know, human rights, democracy, liberal values, and yet in practice to, um, to cast those values aside for reasons of uh, national self-interest. I don't think that America doing that is just any surprise to Niebuhr. He thinks that's how states, just how states behave. But he thinks that we need to be, uh, take much more seriously the fact that we in the United States, like many other states, do that and not pretend that we don't. And I think it's interesting here in Washington because you see, you know, people will recognize this. Um, they will uh, admit that the United States acts in ways that are pure hypocritical and are hypocritical. From the view of, um, for example, much of the the global South or many of the world's emerging powers, but here in Washington, it's something that people pay lip service to, but don't seem to care about. And I think Niebuhr would say this is much more important than you think it is. That the United States claims to be a force for good in the world, and yet goes and aligns itself with states which are clearly, uh, you know, have um, very different views of uh, what it means to be. Um, to uphold uh, uphold these values, um, and that really matters. And I think um, you know that would be his message for uh, for policymakers today: don't swoop it under the rug. Right. But at the same time, he's uh, he he seems you say a Niberian approach to the United States' role in the world today would thus be cautious about pushing values to center stage. Um, that doesn't seem like a principle the Biden administration has in its mind when it describes the uh, rivalry with China as uh, you know democracy versus authoritarianism or autocracy or 
or whatever. Um, talk about this in the sense of our approach to China and uh, what kind of Niberian insights we need there. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think one of the things that Niebuhr would criticize about the Biden administration's approach to the world is its tendency to frame the, the world historical moment in terms of a contest between democracy and authoritarianism. I think he would be critical of that on, on multiple levels. I think he would probably view it as a simplistic uh, and inaccurate description of uh, the, the multiple different kinds of political regime that exist in the world today. Um, but I also I also think that he would reject uh, as uh, rejected as a sign of American moral hubris that was bound to lead to frustration and dismay. And I think you know he would be critical of the Biden administration about this. Although I will say that the Biden administration seems to be doing a little less of that. If you look, for example, at the National Security Advisor's recent. Uh, article in Foreign Affairs, I saw much less of that than in the early days of the administration. And in my own personal view, that's an improvement. Um, and I think <laughs> Niebuhr would probably uh, also take that uh, take that view. Um, I think he would be also very critical of those in Congress who want to turn the U.S. Uh, competition with China, which he would see as real, just as a fact of international system uh, flowing out of our own uh, self-interested nature as nations. But he would see as 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 a mistake those in Congress who would like to turn that competition into a competition between uh, American liberal democracy and Chinese communism. I think he would reject that. He would say it's it's dangerous uh, to add this ideological dimension. The United States needs to exercise more humility in its approach, um, and again, uh, do so in a way that doesn't uh, pretend that, that 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 there is not a real uh, conflict of interest. Um, but try to do it in a way that um, that uh, uh, that that is grounded in humility about the limits of America's own democracy limits, which we have seen clearly in the United States uh, in recent years, uh, and in ways that uh, that promote uh, a restrained or uh, self-restrained view uh, here in Washington. Um, it seems like. One of the things that is not unique to uh, Niebuhr's realism, but uh, you find in realism generally, is th their uh, good theory of mind, basically. We need to try to see the world through the strategic lens of our adversary. Um, and that seems to be a rare feature of the way Washington uh, makes policy. Um, that's respect. That's with respect to a lot of different regions and countries, but also China. Can you talk about the importance of that? I mean, if we're t if we're thinking about how to manage the U.S.-China relationship over the long term in a way that doesn't escalate things or make things more conflictual, um, how can seeing things through their strategic lens help us come to a better kind of route? I, I think one of the things that's most impressive about Niebuhr is the fact that he was able, even if somewhat grudgingly, to endorse liberal democracy and see the good in it, but at the same time recognize that it wasn't, it didn't hold a monopoly on good in the world, that there were other systems that also were capable of making claims to certain types of universal good. 
And this is a root of his humility. He could be in favor of liberal democracy, but at the same time appreciate its imperfections and the fact that uh, other political regimes in the world also aimed at offering certain other types of of goods to the humans um, that were part of those uh, that are part of those regimes. And so this is a this is a very subtle and difficult perspective, I think, for many people today to hold in their in their heads. Um, and I think as a consequence, uh, if you hold such views that are inherently supportive of American democracy, yet also open to its uh, to recognizing its weaknesses and the potential strengths of other regimes, you are wide open uh, to all kinds of criticism, um, which is essentially rooted in a kind of American soft nationalism, um, that you're somehow not loyal to liberal democracy or somehow uh, if you're critical of it, 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 it implies that you uh, want to endorse the political regimes of America's adversaries. And this makes it very difficult to have a, a serious conversation about, um, about these issues um, and makes it difficult for people to express the kind of uh, sympathy that's needed to truly understand the motives and inclinations of America's adversaries. And when you can't at least sympathize to some degree with your adversaries, it's very, very hard to find ways to maneuver American policy towards, uh, towards, towards self-restraint uh, and ultimately towards, uh, towards uh, peace or at least the minimization of, of, of these conflicts, which are, 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 again, naturally, in Niebuhr's view, part of international, uh, international life. Yeah, you're right that uh, one of the most important roles for the U.S. Um, role in the world, uh, from Niebuhr's perspective, is to work towards the peaceful management of global change. I think that's a really excellent way of putting it, and I think a lot of for a lot of reasons that you talked about in the beginning, you know, America's position after World War II and America's position after the Cold War, those circumstances have made it so that I think a lot of U.S. foreign policy is trying to resist change. It's trying to pretend like. There aren't, there, there aren't, you know, that the international system isn't in a state of constant flux, and that we can maintain this dominance and maintain our uh, posture in the Middle East and in Asia and in Europe and so on. Um, but if, if the frame is more about the peaceful management of global change, which really should be the ultimate thing, like let's avoid huge, costly, deadly conflagrations like the ones we've had in the past. Um, talk about that element of, of Niebuhr's uh, work. We're, we're trying to maintain global peace and there's going to be change and it's about managing that change, not resisting it or trying to make our own world. Yeah, one of the things that Washington tends to try to do is to find solutions to problems rather than to manage them. And I think, I think a growing number of international affairs experts have come to realize that that may not be the best approach, that many problems in international affairs really need to be managed rather than solved. But I think Niebuhr would point out that the, the desire to solve international problems is, is, is a characteristically American approach. It's the approach of the engineer. It's the approach of the scientist. Uh, it's the approach of the businessman um, who wants to, you know, fix the problem so that um, they can get on uh, to the next one. 
Um, whereas, again, many problems in international affairs uh, are, are better thought of as problems that need to be uh, managed. And so the question then is, okay, well, what does that mean in America's key relationships? And again, Niebuhr would, would point to the need for humility uh, and self-restraint um, in, in America's own objectives. But he would also hope, and he said this about the Soviet Union uh, at the beginning of the Cold War, that by tempering America's aims, um, that the United States uh, and the Soviet Union would be able over time to to figure out some kind of a modus vivendi and and avoid uh, uh, the cataclysm uh, the cataclysm of another great war, and he was right because ultimately that is what happened um, because there was some degree of restraint on both sides in the 1950s and the 1960s, notwithstanding all of the crises that we faced um, and uh, obviously the moments in which uh, coercion was used to to check. Uh, to check uh, to check one side or the other. Um, ultimately, over time, uh, their modus vivendi was established in which both sides, um, in in practice, if not in theory, accepted the existence of the other. Until finally, the the Soviet Union, as it turned out, um, collapsed because of its own internal contradictions. And so, the question is whether or not um, we ought to be aiming today in the relationship with China. Uh, for some kind of a, a, a final standoff, like the standoff that occurred in in World War in World War II, where the United States fundamentally uh, and um, decisively defeats China um, through the exertion of coercive military and uh, perhaps economic force, or whether we ought to be trying to look to the longer term, figure out a way to manage the relationship. Um, and hope that over time it stabilizes and that both sides um, uh, are able to exercise the necessary humility uh, and self-restraint to keep peace. Because obviously, you know, a, a war with China would be uh, as cataclysmic for America and for the world as a war with the Soviet Union would have been in the 1950s and 1960s. I want to return to something that we kind of glanced at in the at the very top of the show. Um, you point out that the difference between the kind of leadership that you're calling for in that paper and that you think Niebuhr might call call for and the kind of U.S. leadership uh, that the West pursued in, in, in the Cold War, it, the difference there is probably greater than most foreign policy elites recognize. Uh, what do you mean by that? What are you saying there? I mean, the world uh has many collective action problems that need to be resolved. And these collection action problems are more likely to be resolved if um, there are, if, if some country provides leadership and is willing to try to, you know, to, um, to offer, you know, ideas about what the solutions may be or what the right bargains may be uh, in order to, to resolve these collective action problems. And this is true across a range of issues, whether we're talking about health or environment, uh, or even the need to to prevent war, and the United States is is still positioned because of its um, because of history, because of the prestige that it carries, because of the alliances that it has to provide that kind of leadership to to offer to try to um, to um, you know to 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 propose solutions uh, for some of these uh, for some of these problems. That kind of leadership um, is different from a leadership in which the United States, uh, on account of its its primacy 
and its overwhelming military and political power that it enjoyed, for example, in the 1990s, is capable simply of directing uh, other states uh, to take actions that uh, it claims are are in the global interest. That kind of leadership, I don't think, is going to work anymore. And I think that's an adjustment that a lot of people here in Washington need to be making. I think some people are definitely making it, um, you know. But there is uh, there's more thought that needs to go into the question of what uh, constructive and realistic American leadership is going to look like in the mid 21st century, and how it differs from the kind of leadership that the United States became accustomed to, uh, especially in the in the 1990s. Is there something about the incentives uh, in and around the foreign policy, national security community in D.C. that resists this change of perspective? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a good question. I mean, you know, certain types of uh, certain, you know, eras of foreign policy become institutionalized, to use the term loosely. I mean, you know, attitudes uh, that benefit, um, you know, special interests, um, uh, you know, opinions that are, uh, you know, conducive to the status quo, um, there's a whole system that has built that builds up around a particular way of looking at the world um, that um, you know that that is very much in place and will take time to will take time to change and evolve. It may take a big shock uh, to change the system in in any significant way, um, but I do think the system can also evolve gradually. It's just going to take effort and the willingness on the part of some people to um, to take risks, both with both with what they say. Um, with how they uh, shape their careers uh, and how um, and how they engage in in foreign policy, in foreign policy discussion. Uh, Christopher Chivas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. Enjoyed talking to you.